Welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to have you on. You have fascinating perspective on the venture world and a lot of the things you've done there is both a fund investor, direct investor, and then you're doing a lot of really interesting things in the crypto world too, out of what is one of the world's largest asset managers and product manufacturers in Invesco. Would love to unpack all of that, but first would be great to hear your background to give the audience some grounding in the types of things that you do. I run Invesco's venture investment business. We do a few things. We principally invest into VC funds. That's about three quarters of our capital through commingled funds, separate accounts, and then some balance sheet capital on behalf of the parent company. And then we do some direct investing, as you alluded to, or co-investing in some instances where that's about a quarter of our activities. I've been here since for quite a while. I started in September of 2007 at Invesco. I left briefly to get my MBA at a, at a place called INSEAD in France and then returned to Invesco early 2012. We're super active in VC, and somewhat more recently, we've included a focus on crypto. I want to touch on crypto for sure, because I think there's a lot of mirrors between VC world and particularly on the fundraising side and size of funds. There's a mirroring of trajectory, albeit obviously much much earlier on in its life cycle in the crypto world, but some similarities and probably things to compare. So first, I want to talk about venture, because you've done that for a while. You've built up a great portfolio of funds and directs. You've been at Invesco since 2007. So you've been through multiple cycles. You've been through a down market. You've been through an incredible bull market, including 2021, which saw the largest ever dollars raised by VC funds in history by a significant amount. Take us to that point. What are the things that you saw over the course of your time in venture? And why did we get to where we got to? Yeah, it's a good question. First, I I believe that there are these, for those, and maybe you've read this book by Carlotta Perez, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, where she identifies these, what she calls techno-economic paradigms throughout history, which a, a book she wrote in 2002. And each one of those paradigms, she believes, follows a similar pattern. And you have an an eruption of a new technology, a frenzy around that, which leads to a speculative boom and then bust, and then a long period, typically, let's say, 20 to 30 years of deployment of that technology across society. It's been our view, which was admittedly a derivative of other people's views in the venture world, that we were living in this sort of 20 to 30 year period and that even 2012 and 2013 and 14, we were still very early or at least not late in the cycle of this trend of digitizing the economy and and what she calls the ICT revolution. We can get into a little bit later what that portends in terms of the next or coming perhaps sixth revolution and, and whether or not that's crypto and we can debate that. But that's at a high level in terms of one of the things that I think is, has been driving this bull market in tech. Also, coincident with that, I think you've seen um, more initially understanding and then enthusiasm around some of these tech-enabled business models. Initially, only venture investors would underwrite. Eventually, you had growth investors and then even kind of public, in, public market investors became 
very comfortable, for instance, SaaS business models and just how recurring these revenue businesses could be, such that I think you saw more and more capital and more and more investors uh, get comfortable deploying significant amounts of capital behind these businesses. I think that has really buoyed the overall sector. I was remiss earlier in not talking a little bit about where we focus, which is mostly on early stage venture. We do some mid and and quasi late stage, but the vast majority of our activities is early stage. And we continue to think that that's the best opportunity set for the asset class. I want to jump off on that point, which is you're focused on early stage VC, fund managers, and then directs. As more capital has flowed into the VC ecosystems, we've seen fund sizes get bigger, round sizes get bigger, private companies stay private longer. What has that made you think about in terms of how you calibrate your strategy and who you allocate to in terms of the fund managers and the size of funds they have, the strategies that they have? It's a question that we spend a lot of our time litigating internally and particularly how long to support a successful early stage fund as they inevitably grow in size and wanting to remain long-term supporters of our partners, but also recognizing that at some point their, their strategy inevitably will evolve into being more stage agnostic. Even if they're initiating positions in early stage rounds, they're deploying more capital in the subsequent rounds such that your exposure in that particular fund may be weighted more toward late stage rather than early stage. It is a challenge, and particularly in this environment where we think early stage is is better positioned, frankly, than it's ever been from a valuation perspective and how much capital there is downstream to A, take those companies to fruition, but also B, investing at higher prices such that early stage investors take less dilution. To put a finer point on, depending on your data source, early stage valuations are up over the last 10 years, let's call it somewhere between three and 450%, uh, whereas late stage valuations are up, let's say 11, 12, 1300%. On the surface, early stage is relatively better positioned, but is it still worse off than it was five or 10 years ago? Our perspective is no, it's actually better off than five or 10 years ago because What matters is not the absolute level versus what you paid. What matters is the relative level between early stage and late stage valuations. If I'm investing at 3x a higher price, but then I'm raising downstream at 10x a higher price, I benefit from that arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that that is going to persist? Because I think particularly in 2021, this vintage has the chance to be potentially very good if, if you believe that markets are bigger than we always think they are going to be. And that as tech, particularly globally, look, Latin America, Africa, Asia, there are many more people coming online, many more companies coming online and using SaaS tools and things like that. So if you believe that markets are going to get bigger, then certainly higher valuations are okay, as long as companies can grow into that. But Do you think that that's what's going to unfold here, or do you take a different view on that? I I think the short answer is it depends. Depends what sector we're talking about. It depends if we're talking consumer enterprise, if we're talking fintech, healthcare, crypto, et cetera. We would not generalize across everything. So I think there's going to be areas that we think are less attractive, both because we think they're overinvested or we think the investors are paying too high prices such that you're going to see a lot of flat rounds, if not down rounds. But in general, I agree with your presupposition, which is that total TAMs have gotten much larger, going to continue to get larger. I think it's just a question of the sustainability of many of the business models prosecuting those TAMs. It'll be interesting to see 
how many of these companies, particularly let's take enterprise software companies, are able to toggle to some form of profitability or at least lower burn to perhaps sustain them through what may be a, not a winter, but maybe a, a less supportive capital raising environment here for the next 12 to 18 months, which we tend to believe it will be. We think it's going to be a more challenging environment for the next maybe year, year and a half, or maybe two years. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah no, it, it absolutely does. And I think it leads into another question, which is really around the VC business model. VCs are raising larger funds. They're maybe even becoming multi-product, multi-strategy. There, there's a platformization happening or a black stonification happening, similar to what mirrors what's happened in private equity over time. One, how do you think that changes the world of venture? And two, how does that change the way in which VCs allocate to companies too and what that means for the companies? In some senses, maybe it's the tail wagging the dog. VCs have more money to give companies will take more money. They just have to take it at a valuation that's palatable to them. I think that's right. This is why I do think there is there's going to be this support underpinning the, the venture growth ecosystem broadly to how much capital has been raised here over the last year or so in venture and growth. And even if these investors are pulling back temporarily, eventually they're going to need to deploy that capital. They're not going to return it to LPs like us. That capital is going to get deployed. And most founders are not going to probably accept all that much dilution, at least if they're in a, a position to dictate, such that the valuations are going to stay, we think, fairly fairly high, at least on a historical-looking basis. So yeah, we totally agree. I think because there is so much capital in public market investors, private equity investors increasingly pursuing investment into these you know, private tech companies, it's going to be a, a buoyant force for the foreseeable future. How do you think the business of venture has changed? On Altco's mainstream, we've had a number of the platforms that are providing the infrastructure to enable people to become fund managers. And you look at people who have made a mark on the space, like AngelList, for example. Carta is another example. And then on the LP or distribution side, you have the iCapitals of the world, the moon fares, the allocates. How has technology impacted the business of venture? Because when you're allocating to these funds, you're thinking of them as multi-year relationships and you want to help them grow their businesses. We have not leveraged any of those platforms from an investment standpoint for deal flow or anything like that. I do I think those platforms are going to grow and they're really important for the ecosystem. And, and in many cases, they have a democratizing or sort of socializing impact. But my view is that those will largely be leveraged by a high net worth or individuals, family offices, high net worth platforms, more so than institutions, at least for the foreseeable future. We're seeing the retailization of private markets and particularly venture. So that's impacted venture in a sense. Now, you do a number of things with the capital that you have. You invest principal off Invesco's balance sheet, one of the world's largest asset managers. You also have these SMAs with large institutions, pension funds, endowments, things like that. How has the retailization of private markets and access to new capital for these fund managers on platforms like an iCapital, an Allocate, a Moonfair, Republic, AngelList, how has that changed how your LPs see the world or how you think about getting into certain funds? Has it changed at all or has it not really changed the way in which you're operating and conducting your business with fund managers? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I do believe in general that 
to bootstrap a, a new fundraise, these new platforms are, are incredibly valuable for that purpose. And, and I'll take something like AngelList as a quintessential example. But if you want to scale up a fund, it is really challenging to do that without institutional support, without institutions. You can go from zero to 15 on AngelList pretty easily. Maybe you can go from zero to 30. Going from 30 to 200 is challenging without institutions. And in terms of how our LPs are, are viewing the world, they don't view those platforms as institutional yet. Now, maybe that will change. I'd say the one area where we compete a little bit with those platforms is we now have a seeding program whereby we seed funds in exchange for part of the carry in those funds, not in perpetuity, so we're not buying into the GP, but we buy into that fund on a one-off discrete basis. That is where sometimes you will see an underlying fund manager make the, the choice between taking institutional money earlier on, but with admitted sort of strings attached versus raising from a high net worth or retail audience and postponing the decision to go out to market with institutions. There's no right answer. I think it's sort of case by case what people do on that front. But that's maybe the one area where we see some sort of competitiveness between our model and theirs. Well, there's no right answer, but it may also signal some level of intent of the fund manager's uh, desire to build a business in a certain way. Because if they're partnering with you, presumably they're thinking about this as a multi-fund relationship. They're building a business for the long term. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Our view is, and, and part of our, our sales pitch is, hey, you're raising XYZ GP or raising your fund one or your fund two. Presumably that is a much smaller fund. Let's say it's 15, 20 million in size. The economics that you give up in that fund are going to be far less meaningful than when you're raising a 150 or 200 or 300 million dollar fund and you are presumably not going to be giving up again because we don't take those economics in perpetuity and we help bootstrap you or expedite your progression to that ultimate scale that you want to get to and then we also do some things we serve as a partner such that we try to help you raise the capital above our investment to, to make sure that we're earning our keep so to speak. That's fantastic. And I'd imagine that there's some similarities between what you're doing in venture and what you're doing in crypto. What are the one types of things that you're focused on in crypto? And two, how much of this is driven by your LP demand of large institutions saying, hey, let's create an SMA and find the best crypto VC funds? When we first did our deep dive in crypto in 2016 and then made our first dedicated crypto investment, fund investment, I should say, in 2017, it was not an obvious decision. There were certainly other LPs who were investing in crypto as well, but uh, it was not a, a pull from our LPs, do more crypto. But we had built this conviction, uh, a lot of conversations with people in and around the crypto space, particularly on the venture side, and ultimately decided we wanted uh, more dedicated or focused exposure on the sector. We invested, I think, notably throughout the crypto winter. So sort of an easier decision investing in 2017. There was some consensus, but we invested actively in 2018, 2019, 2020, and both on the fund side and, as you alluded to, on the direct or co-invest side. Today, we are now starting to see more broad-based interest, even from folks like us, in dedicated crypto strategies. Today, most all of our vehicles that we've done crypto investing out of have been generalist from a sector perspective. But I think in the future, you could see us, like others, do more in terms of just crypto-focused vehicles. How similar is it to underwrite 
a crypto VC fund as it is to underwrite a venture fund. And what I'm really getting at here is there may be some different skill sets that are required to be a good crypto fund manager. So how do you parse out the institutional knowledge and background you have as a VC fund allocator and transfer that over to being a crypto fund allocator? Yeah, it's a good question. So first, uh, there is much less data for folks like us on these crypto GPs. Inherently, most of these crypto GPs are new. Crypto hasn't been around that long as an asset class. In the traditional venture world, you're often dealing with track records that are far more statistically significant than you are on, on the crypto side. So that's the first challenge. We're somewhat better positioned in that we have always had these emerging manager vehicles. Going back to 2005, we manage these dedicated emerging manager mandates, for instance, for on behalf of CalSTRS. We have this process that we found to be tried and true, backing and supporting newer funds. A lot of that is extendable to the crypto side. In addition, I would say that many crypto GPs, not all of them, are technically proficient. So uh, I think both out of their own backgrounds, but also necessity, they're able to add value. And frankly, they're somewhat forced to add value more tangibly than traditional VCs are. Obviously, it's become somewhat of a, a meme about whether VCs actually add value or not, or how many VCs add value or, or don't. In the crypto space, in part, and this is just my own personal view, because there's more competition between crypto VC funds and the broader community, because these projects can do raise from non-institutional investors at an earlier stage than traditional venture uh, companies do. As a VC, you really have to distinguish yourself from other potential investors of which there is, it's far more democratized. You have to add value, I, we believe, somewhat more tangibly and publicly. And then separate, you also have to be less extractive from an economic standpoint, because the community is so powerful and you don't want to sort of get on the wrong side of that. Such an interesting statement by you. Do you think that traditional VCs will be able to compete with crypto funds, given a lot of the things that you just said? I think it depends what type of crypto investing they're doing. If you're investing at the application layer, for instance, just to give an example, traditional consumer VCs, which will be successful in some cases, investing in consumer crypto applications or Web3 applications. I think there's gaming VCs, which are very credible within kind of GameFi or crypto gaming, such that I think they are able to go head to head with crypto VCs or crypto native VCs. I also think you're going to start to see projects optimized for, in many cases, complementary investors, such that once they have crypto native folks on board, maybe people who can help with protocol design or how do you construct your uh, tokenomic kind of models, and then other people who can actually help you, you know, build that game, build that new application, design it and bring the Web2 perspective to bear as well. I think you're going to see as, as crypto founders get more uh, sophisticated around their cap tables and as the, the overall space matures, you're going to see a home for many kind of traditional VCs within crypto. But we do believe that many of these crypto native investors, because they so authentically share that ethos with the community, are, are probably going to be at least as well, if not better positioned here going forward. What would be the takeaways for someone who is trying to invest in the crypto space, either as a crypto fund VC manager or as a traditional VC manager? What are the skill sets in your mind that 
it takes to be a successful crypto fund manager? First, I think it depends on within crypto and most crypto VCs I, today are generalist in terms of their focus. At least that's been my experiences. It used to be that there was DeFi only crypto VCs or crypto VCs that were focused on you know, infrastructure versus applications. Now, everybody kind of does everything. There's some gaming funds and, and things like that. But for the most part, everybody is a generalist within crypto. In terms of what it takes to be successful, it's, it's the same things in traditional VC. It's that network. It's the brand. It's your top of funnel deal flow within crypto and the quality of that deal flow. It's also your filter. And many crypto VCs are already you know, pretty good at the filtering side. And then it's the purported value that you add post-investment, which again is all sort of mirrors the traditional venture world. I think probably the piece that's maybe incremental is the community piece and, and immersing yourself in those crypto communities because so much of the interesting projects emanate from Discord and from Telegram and, and other sort of crypto native communities and, and crypto native conferences. It's so, so true in terms of the balance of being in the right networks being crypto native, that really does make a difference. And there are skill sets there that matter. From a crypto perspective, what excites you most about the space right now? Historically, we have invested both in crypto funds that are pretty generalist and diversified. And then we've done some direct or co-investing. And we've, in that bucket, we've invested in NFT decentralized or Web3 content platforms. I'll try not to name names here. We've invested in crypto okay, you infrastructure. You can name names if you want. <laughs> We've invested in crypto gaming, like play to earn games, and we've invested in decentralized wireless or broadband networks. But I think in terms of where, at least I'll speak for myself here, where I'm interested today, continue to be interested in scaling on the infrastructure side. That could mean layer twos. And I think a lot of the layer two momentum that, that we're seeing and interested in is within ZK or zero knowledge. And that is also beginning new types of applications that are being facilitated as this infrastructure continues to be built out. And then some of the tooling. For a long time, I think you saw these big kind of macro bets and projects and theses in crypto. And now I think it's getting down to micro and it's new founders and teams now building things, tooling and different solutions to enable these things to actually come to market. As you get to the application layer side, that is certainly where a lot of the momentum is right now are new applications. We don't believe that infrastructure comes first and then applications. We think it's you know, reflexive such that infrastructure begets applications, which sort of begets more investment in infrastructure. And then within applications, we continue to be very bullish on the gaming sector. I know it's polarizing within Web2 gaming, but we think this is here to stay as a longer term opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of fascinating things in, in what you just said. I, I want to touch on the fund and fundraising aspect of crypto. We've talked about this in the context of venture, how funds are becoming bigger in size and scale. Crypto is obviously earlier in its life cycle in that regard, but you're starting to see significant amounts of capital. Multicoin has now gone from a 50 to $250 million fund. Electric's gone to a $500 million fund. Paradigm is a multi-billion dollar fund. Andreessen is raising their second multi-billion dollar fund. Katie Hahn just raised close to 900 in total. You're starting to see a lot of capital go into the private markets in crypto. One, what lessons do you take from what's happened in venture and what that means for crypto? And two is, what's your view on the, the, the fallout or shakeout from that? 
First, I think it's a great point and, and a great thing to highlight, but I actually think you sandbagged on some of the numbers. I think some of the funds actually ended up a little bit bigger than your So, But yeah, this is a challenge in venture in, in general, but even more of a challenge in crypto where you're seeing more significant inflections from one fund to the next in size. I believe this is because it's still a fairly limited universe, relatively speaking, of credible institutional quality crypto-focused funds, such that there's a lot of demand to invest in those funds, particularly now, which is pushing those fund sizes up very considerably. This was somewhat inevitable, but I do think to the extent one can, one is advised to focus on early stage and small funds, not even more than in traditional venture. So for instance, in crypto, you could see a project raise a seed round, for instance, at let's say a 50 million valuation, and then raise what is ostensibly a series A at a 1.2 billion valuation, eight months later, without any intermittent round in between. Even in traditional venture with the, the high-flying kind of ramps and brexes of the world, you don't see that type of inflection round over round in such a short period of time. And it's because a lot of these crypto funds have just grown astronomically in size and are inevitably going to be investing the majority of their capital in those later stage rounds. A lot of very high quality crypto funds that you mentioned the majority of those funds, not all of them, there's maybe one or two exceptions, I think even if they're still doing Series A's, the majority of their capital, the vast majority is going to be focused much later stage or at much uh, higher prices in the current market. Yeah. Do you think many LPs have internalized that? And even GPs to some extent, it's obviously a trade-off, but the larger the fund size, the paradox is generally lower returns. Your fund size is your strategy. Let's just bucket them all together because I think they're all really credible firms. We often make the, the distinction or the delineation between what is a really excellent firm and what is a really excellent fund. And those two things don't always go hand in hand. I, I hope that those large multi-billion dollar funds, of which there are now quite a few, I hope they all do very well. If they do very well, then our earlier stage exposure in crypto is going to do incredibly well. There's definite benefit to your strategy of investing in early stage crypto managers because as the funds get bigger, investing in the smaller managers will tend to pay off because they will get marked up by the larger funds. And, and to be clear, this is not meant to be pejorative toward those larger funds, but is a natural evolution of funds to grow in size, to grow their own teams, to grow the economic pool. And then even more than that, I think those funds are necessary to help realize the, the sort of vision of crypto and Web3 in general. Those funds are necessary to take these projects to fruition. This is not to, meant to cast dispersions at, at any of those groups. I think that they're obviously incredibly smart. They're gonna be very successful. It's just to say, we think the relatively better investment opportunities in crypto are in early stage rather than late stage. I would also make one final point, which is today, and, and maybe it's correcting literally today, but in general, we believe that the public markets have either overcorrected or the late stage private markets have not yet reflected this new reality because on a like-for-like -like basis, public comps have typically fallen below where a lot of these private rounds are getting done. So either you're gonna see public markets recover 
and maybe that's already starting to happen this week, or we think some of this late-stage private stuff is maybe slightly ahead of its skis. That's a great point. So I want to wrap this podcast with something that I ask every guest, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? I'm going to go off the board. I, I like investing into craft breweries. I invest into a number of breweries, and I think not all of them, but if you back a, a good management team and a good operator and that makes really high-quality beer and has a way to drive traffic to the brewery such that you can you know, capture some of the margin, which is otherwise captured by the distributor, or self-distribute your beer, they can be very, very attractive, make for very attractive investments. That's a fascinating example of an alternative investment that actually nobody else has talked about. I've had VinoVest on our podcast. So obviously wine as an alternative investment certainly fits, but what's I'm an investor in VinoVest. Oh, there we go. So you, you understand the power of one passion assets as being something that can be an investable asset as well. And two, I think what you're also highlighting is the shift towards more artisanal things as well. And that's going to be interesting to see how the alt space evolves as more artisanal things or even startups of all types. Like you may want craft breweries that you invest in to raise money from the crowd eventually because their fans become their owners. And there's a lot of things that can happen with themes that you're touching on. Is that also a piece of why you think this is so fascinating? Totally, totally, completely agree. And, and I, I think I should be very clear. I think these new funding models are really interesting for a variety of different assets and, and particularly in terms of democratizing access to more alternative assets for a retail investor, I think is not only a good investment opportunity, but also socially valuable. Can't wait to see that Invesco Craft Brewery ETF. <laughs> Craft Brewery Fund, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> That'll be amazing. Well, Evan, we covered a ton of ground. This was so much fun. So many great insights in a number of areas. So thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Michael. Awesome. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going